Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to listen carefully to this Mission Impossible series podcast. Follow the website, talkinggreatestfilms.wordpress.com, and subscribe to the Talking Films pod on Anchor, Spotify, or however you listen to it. Staying tuned for future podcast episodes. This podcast will self-destruct never. Hello everyone, this is Ray from Talking Films. Very excited to get right into this special episode of the Talking Films pod, the Mission Impossible series as promised for a while now. Uh, things have been busy on my end, but I've, I've finally had the chance to sit down and start recording again. Uh, and as I've said, this is going to be a one movie at a time look at the Mission Impossible series, starting of course with 1996's Mission Impossible. It's going to be a slightly different format from the usual podcast episodes. So if you're a regular listener or if you've listened to some of the other episodes, you'll notice some differences. We'll follow a very similar uh, overall format and process to this uh, series look. Uh, But I'm going to get right into it. And I'm going to start with basically my introduction to Mission Impossible. I was late coming into Mission Impossible. Uh, mainly because I was never really into Tom Cruise. Uh, I never really got him that much. I never really enjoyed Tom Cruise. Uh, and I'm going to, I think I'm going to touch on that a little later on as well. But for now, uh, there, there are four things that happened that basically led me to watching the Mission Impossible movies. The first thing that happened was I rewatched The Last Samurai for the first time in, I think, years. Uh, which, of course, also stars Mr. Tom Cruise in the lead role. And I realized that he's he can be really good. He's really, really good in The Last Samurai. Um, and that was one, that was probably the first catalyst into me watching Mission Impossible for the first time. The second thing that happened, Henry Cavill was cast in Mission Impossible Fallout, which was released in summer of 2018. It's the most recent Mission Impossible movie to come out. I'm a big Henry Cavill fan, so that naturally grabbed my attention. The third thing that happened was the trailer for the aforementioned Mission Impossible Fallout came out, and it looked absolutely incredible and made me think, maybe I should watch the other movies before uh, I watch Fallout, just to see what they're like and just to see if Fallout's actually a type of movie that I could enjoy. And the fourth and final thing that happened was uh, I was walking through a movie store and I found a DVD box set of all five Mission Impossible movies for $15. So I took that as the universe had sent me a sign saying, Ray, you need to sit down and watch all five of these movies and then go into the theater and watch Mission Impossible Fallout. And that's exactly what I did. And I regret absolutely nothing. I love the Mission Impossible series, Mission Impossible Fallout, which I will talk uh, about, I guess, five series episodes from now. Um is absolutely incredible, uh, and I am a big, big Mission Impossible fan. I am going to give some background into the Mission Impossible series as well. This will probably be the longest running of the Mission Impossible-themed episodes, but I think it's important to get into some of the backstory and some of the uh, background into Mission Impossible. It was originally a TV series, 
uh, on CBS, produced by Bruce Geller. The main two characters were Dan Briggs, who was played by Stephen Hill, and Jim Phelps, played by Peter Graves. Uh, Phelps essentially became the point man or the lead character in the second season. Uh, Mission Impossible series ran from September 1966 through 1973, and then had a bit of a brief revival on ABC from 1988 to 90. In total, it won eight Emmys, including two for Best Dramatic Series, uh, three for Barbara Bain for Best Actress, and three Golden Globes, uh, Best Series in 1968, Best Actor in 1968, and Best Actor in 1971. The cast included, as I mentioned, Barbara Bain, Martin Landau, who won Best Actor in the 1968 Golden Globes, Leonard Nimoy, Leslie Ann Warren, and Sam Elliott, among others. Graves was also the winner of the 1971 Golden Globe for Best Actor. So pretty star-studded main cast, uh, and it had a pretty impressive series run. Now, in terms of the movie, which, as I mentioned before, was released in 1996, excuse me, uh, which had Tom Cruise uh, attached as a producer. But if you look at the uh, the production side of things, before we even get into the cast, uh, the production side is pretty star-studded as well. You have Brian De Palma, who is the director. Uh, the story was developed by David Kep, the man behind uh, Jurassic Park and Spider-Man, uh, as a screenplay writer, screenwriter. Uh, and Steven Zalian, who, of course, is is famous for having written... Uh, movies like The Irishman and Schindler's List, Gangs of New York, among others. The screenplay itself was written by Kep, and the one and only Robert Town, who uh, is perhaps most well-known for being the writer of the movie Chinatown. And then you have that iconic theme, which was uh, originally written by Lalo Schifrin uh, and was developed by Danny Elfman, who did the score for the movie. The movie itself stars, of course, Tom Cruise, as every of the Mission Impossible movies does. He is the centerpiece to all of the movies, and I am going to talk more about him as we go on. Mission Impossible, the movie starred uh, Emmanuel Bayard, John Voight, Harry Cherney, Ving Rhames, Jean Reno, Vanessa Redgrave, Kristen Scott Thomas, and Emilio Estevez, among others. Uh, and this is the point in which I will say, if you haven't seen... Mission Impossible. Uh, this is the point in which I will start getting into spoiler territory. So if you're someone who does not like spoilers and you haven't seen Mission Impossible, go and watch the movie, then come back and finish listening to the podcast. If you uh, have seen the movie, you may listen on without, uh, without consequence and without risk. One thing that I think the Mission Impossible movie does extremely well is bridge the gap between old-style spy and new-style spy movies. Uh, emerging technology is evident here. Obviously, it's 1996, so it, all the technology in it is all really cool and very 90s. Like It's almost laughable to watch it now in 2020 and say, like this is the gadget stuff that they had uh, because you have things like emails and surveillance taps and digital readouts of things. Um and again, it's all very cool, very 90s, it's all very slick, but none of it comes across as being over the top or ridiculous like some other spy productions. And of course, the I mean, Mission Impossible is a spy movie at its core. Um, but if you think of movies like 007, the James Bond series, um, you know, a lot of the gadgets in that are fairly over the top, 
especially with the, the first few groups of movies that came out in the 60s, 70s, and then especially in the 80s. Like some of the gadgets in those movies are completely ridiculous and completely over the top. Uh, Mission Impossible does a really good job of grounding it in a sense of reality and making it seem real uh, without kind of going over the top. Uh, and it really straddles that line between reality and ridiculous really well. The other thing that Mission Impossible does is, is while kind of getting into this new technology that is real and was really coming out at the time, it's a great homage to spy films of the past. Uh, and when you think about, you know, misdirection as being a common trait within spy movies, you know, Mission Impossible is full of great misdirections and full of great cloak and dagger type of sneaking around. I feel like every good spy movie or, you know, almost every good action movie within the 80s and 90s had at least one scene of someone sneaking around in an air vent. Mission Impossible checks that box uh, emphatically. And even when you think about Kittredge's attire, Kittredge, of course, the CIA head, uh, or sorry, the IMF head played by Harry Cherney, uh, you know, he wears a trench coat and a fedora. It kind of harkens back to an older style uh, of movie and that older sense of fashion. So this is especially where I'm going to get into spoilers. Uh, Mission Impossible starts with a pretty bold move, even by today's movie standards. And I'm not talking about that very first scene, which is great, uh, where you get the, the interrogation and then the classic, uh, which has now become a trademark of the Mission Impossible movies, where Ethan runs in or, or exits the room and rips off the, the mask that he's been wearing as he's impersonating someone. I'm talking about kind of the end of, I guess you could call it the end of the first act of the movie. Uh, because for the first few minutes of the movie, you have an entire team of people. You have the IMF team head, but headed by Phelps, Ethan Hunt played by Tom Cruise is the point man. And you get introductions to pretty much the entire IMF team. Uh, you get the sense that they've worked together before they work very well together. And then they embark on their initial heist for lack of a better term, um, where they're, they're basically out to stop someone from stealing something. Uh, it's a really bold move, I think, by Mission Impossible to build up and introduce an entire team of people, get to know all of them a little bit, and then kill them basically all off within the first act. Usually the everything seems like it's going wrong portion happens near the end at the climax, and then everything turns out okay, or mostly okay, with maybe some collateral damage, as long as the good guys win. But here it's still the kind of the start of the movie. Everything does go completely wrong, and the only good guy who even survives unscathed, at least for a brief period of time, we think, is Ethan. And he gets thrown under the bus by Kittredge, the CIA, and the IMF right away. Um, that's a bold move, I think. You don't often get this buildup of a team of people and then kill them off. I mean, think of Ocean's Eleven. Uh, when we get those introductions to, uh, to the Eleven, you know, what would have happened if, say, they killed off eight of them uh, within the first third of the movie? Like that, it's kind of unheard of for, for an ensemble cast like this, especially where you have big, big names and recognizable people like Kristen Scott Thomas, like Emilio Estevez, who don't make it out of the first act of the movie like John Voight, who appears as though he's been killed off right at the start. Um, you know, it's it's a pretty bold 
move, but it, it goes along with some of that misdirection when Voigt reappears and when Emmanuel Bayard reappears uh, soon after. Unlike other Mission Impossible movies, it's not filled with big action and stunt set pieces, which I think the later movies have become almost more well-known for. Uh, you get lots of tension and lots of silence within Mission Impossible, the first movie, and I think that's part of bridging the gap between old-school spy movies and new-school spy movies. I mean, at its core, it is a spy movie, but it's also an action movie, and there are big action set pieces within this movie, but they're blended in and, and mixed in with that tension and that silence. And I think about, you know, if you, if you were to pick the central set piece to Mission Impossible, it's undoubtedly the CIA heist, which is now a classic and timeless uh, scene and sequence. It's not a big action stunt-filled set piece. It's filled with tension. It's filled with silence. Uh, and, and I think, again, like I said, it, it bridges the gap between old school and new school really, really well. If you were to say the big set piece, as in big in terms of stunt and scale, it's undoubtedly the climactic train sequence. And that really sets the bar as far as the Mission Impossible set pieces go. Uh, you know, it's kind of become commonplace and well-known that basically what Tom Cruise and the Mission Impossible production team are out to do with each Mission Impossible movie is one-up the stunts that they've done in the movie previous to it. Uh, unlike other classic spy movies, and again, think James Bond, uh, where the villain is menacing and usually, but not always, played by a really well-known actor, in a lot of the Mission Impossible movies, we don't even know who the true villain is until late, and this the reason why I, I bring that up now is because we don't know who the true villain is in Mission Impossible until very late in the movie. Uh, and again, spoiler alert, it's, you know, John Voight is is great. I'm not usually a big John Voight fan. Uh, I think he's very hit or miss as an actor and some of the choices he makes and some of the characters he plays. But he's really good in this movie. He almost becomes a, he almost plays two different characters because the Phelps that he plays in the first two acts of the movie uh, is almost completely different than the Phelps that he plays during the climax and on the train. And I think, you know, that's part of the great misdirect of the movie um and i think it's one of those things that um you know again it's it's bridging the gap and again in the tv series phelps was the hero for much of the series he was uh the lead guy so it's a it's a huge misdirect one to kill him off in the first act and two to have him re-emerge but three to have him re-emerge as the villain is just a phenomenal redirect and full credit to the to the writing staff uh, for that, and full credit to Voight for playing him really, really well. Uh, there are some, and I, I talk about misdirection. I mean, it's kind of the theme of this movie between Phelps's double cross. You have that great scene with Ethan where he has the two uh, discs and the sleight of hand, uh, and you know that whole magic trick sequence that he does with with Jean Reno's Krieger. Uh, Krieger is a great misdirect with his double cross. And then, of course, Ethan's double cross uh, at the end as well. I mean, it's it's full of double crosses. It's full of misdirection. Um, and that's what makes this movie so great is you're constantly on your toes. You're constantly being misdirected. And even in later Mission Impossible movies, when you know it's a misdirect, it's set up all because of the misdirects in this movie. 
Uh, just some other thoughts before I get into into some more uh, specific things about uh, that we normally do on the podcast. Uh, some random thoughts here. I mean, poor William Donlow, the the CIA employee whose office gets robbed by Ethan. I mean, that guy doesn't even stand a chance. He is he does nothing wrong over the course of the movie. But you get that great line from Kittredge. I want him manning a radar tower in Alaska by the end of the day. Just mail him his clothes. Uh, Ethan watching the clock as he knows the countdown is on when he calls Kittredge uh, from the train station and he knows the trace is on is an awesome touch because it shows Ethan's efficiency. It shows how much he thinks about every situation and every scenario. And then right after that, Ethan figuring out and basically showing us through flashback images that are kind of pieced together as to how they actually happened uh, is a great way of showing the audience how he's figuring things out while talking to Jim and playing it cool. He doesn't give away that he knows and has caught on to any of this, even when he realizes Claire isn't on it too. And then he get we get that anguished, why Jim, why? Which is a really clever line because it's it's delivered in a way that with this revelation in mind, we know that he's almost, it's really clever in terms that we know he's asking him like, why would you do this? But the delivery of the line and how it's interpreted uh, by Phelps is why the setup and, you know, Phelps doesn't know that Ethan knows. And it's a, again, it's a great misdirect. It's a great delivery of a line. I mean, well, We'll talk all throughout these Mission Impossible episodes about how good Tom Cruise is, not just as an action star, but delivering some of the lines and in some of the more heartfelt scenes. Um, and Phelps is his mentor. Like Phelps was his the guy who brought him up through the the IMF. And you know this is a really heartbreaking scene for Ethan as he's realizing that Phelps is in fact the villain. There's a lot of focus played on uh, or put on Krieger's knife. You miss it the first time around that you watch it, but during the second watch, you realize just how important Krieger's knife is. Um, you know, obviously uh, buried in Kristen Scott Thomas's chest, uh, and then Krieger has it again, and then he comes back and he has it in the CIA scene, and that's you know kind of the giveaway. That's what's on the desk. Uh, when Donlow comes back into his office, I mean, it's the first time you watch the movie, like I said, you, you miss a lot of things, especially with some of the misdirects. But the second time through and knowing that Krieger is the bad guy and he is the one who kills Kristen Scott Thomas's character, uh, you realize that, oh, wait, this is important and this is really cleverly hidden in plain sight. In terms of the... Mission Impossible series as a whole, uh, it introduces a lot of things that happen and take place throughout a lot of the other movies as well. Uh, the famous Tom Cruise, Ethan Hunt run is very present in this movie. You get a lot of masks and deception. Of course, the technology plays a big role in the Mission Impossible movies. Uh, but again, like I mentioned, much unlike the Bond movies, they're very much grounded in uh, straddling this line between real and ridiculous. And again, in 1996, this whole thing about email being a new technology uh, is is kind of funny now, but at the time, it was, it was very cutting-edge indeed. Uh, Luther, played by Ving Rhames, is, is one of the better characters, I think, through the whole series. 
his in-mission reactions to things that happen are great, and this movie introduces those in a big way. Of course, with any Mission Impossible movie, there are always going to be lots of close calls. There are definitely many close calls in the first one. Uh, self-destructing mission briefs. Uh, you know, this it's a great trait that's common through all of the movies. Uh, and we get that right at the very beginning when Phelps is on the plane. Wild stunts, of course. Uh, Ethan not working alone and also working alone. He does a lot of that throughout the movies where he'll be on his own for a little bit and then he rallies a team around him. Uh, the smug Ethan Hunt smirk or smile, usually when he's talking to the villain, sometimes when he's talking to, to Luther and his own teammates as well. And of course, we get Tom Cruise doing ridiculous things that no other human would do just for the sake of the stunt and for the sake of the audience's enjoyment. In Mission Impossible, it's being on the train, on top of a moving train, uh, which again, with some CGI help in terms of the, uh, the helicopter exploding, but a lot of the stunts are very real, uh, and that becomes a very common trait in Mission Impossible. Just a couple more shot or more uh, kind of quick hits before we get into the nitty gritty of the movie. Uh, Harry Cherney is absolutely spectacular. He's he is probably the best actor at being uh, a good guy, but not a good guy, but not the villain, but still kind of a bad guy. It turns out to be a good guy, but still you don't really like him. Character. And I know that's a lot to process, but when you think about it, I mean the two movies that he might be the most well-known for are Mission Impossible and Clear and Present Danger. And in both of those movies, that's the type of guy that he plays. Clear and Present Danger, I think he's a little more clear-cut as a bad dude um, going head-to-head -head against Harrison Ford. But here in Mission Impossible, he very much is that good guy, but not a good guy, but not a villain, but still a bad guy, but sort of a good guy. Uh, and he's great in that role. I don't know what it takes to pull off being a character like that, but he does it really well. And the other thing that, that's kind of concurrent through all the Mission Impossible movies is we know that Tom Cruise is going to be successful. We know he's going to accomplish the mission. We don't know how. And somehow the movies always make us think, holy crap, he's actually not going to do it. But he always pulls through. And, and I think that's kind of the charm of the series. Similar to Bond, where Bond, you know... He has all the odds stacked against him, and then he pulls through with the help of some gadget. Ethan is much more, I think, relatable, because at some point, he starts off with the gadget. The gadget doesn't work. Something goes wrong. Something else goes wrong. And then he almost has to kind of pull the horseshoe out of his ass and accomplish the mission. Um, and again, it's, it's kind of the charm of the series, I think, where you know that they're going to win. You know that Ethan's going to win and the good guys are going to win, but you don't know how. And it keeps you guessing. And again, this theme of misdirection, and that's one thing that the whole Mission Impossible series does really well, but especially with this movie, um, you know, when it looks like it's all going to go wrong, all of a sudden you get the call back to the, the opening sequence, basically, with the chewing gum on the windshield of the helicopter. And you're like, oh, of course that's going to be how he does it. Um, and it's just, it's, it's really great there. It's, it's really, I think a charming series and a charming movie. 
has this movie aged super well? Probably not. I think the other Mission Impossible movies, again, as they've been made, I think that the technology has kind of been updated a little more. They, as I mentioned, they one up the stunts every time. But I think Mission Impossible uh, has stood the test of time in terms of setting the bar. It's a great setting the bar movie. And again, it it really bridges the past to the future of spy movies and of action movies as well, but more so as a spy movie. And again, you get great callbacks to the past, like Kittredge's trench coat and fedora, uh, with Phelps, you know, specific to Mission Impossible as being the lead guy at the start, and then the great misdirect of him becoming the villain. Um, you know, it, it really bridges the gap well between old school and new school. And it really sets the bar for Mission Impossible series moving forward. So some of the, uh, I won't cover all of the normal categories or segments that I normally do in these podcast episodes, but I will touch on some of them. First up, best scenes or shots. Uh, The entire CIA set piece is just incredibly well shot. Uh, And it's incredibly tense. It's incredibly quiet when it needs to be. Uh, And again, that kind of silence just helps with the tension, I think. And where we we tend to think of Mission Impossible as a series as being kind of loud and big and, you know, really big scale. But again, part of what Mission Impossible, this movie, does really well is bridging that gap. And in a lot of spy movies from the, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, Bond being the exception, I think, but a lot of spy movies do really great, tense, quiet sequences. Um, and and that is part of what I keep talking about is bridging the gap. And, and you know, that's probably going to become uh, the, the theme of this episode and the, and the title of this episode is bridging the gap between old school and new school. And, and it's just another great example of within this big action movie, you have this... Uh, pivotal scene which is chock full of tension and chock full of silence uh and it's 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 really well done you have you know again you have this idea where things go wrong when it looks like they're not going to be successful but again you know that ethan is going to pull a horseshoe out of his ass and somehow pull it off uh the train climax is good again i I think some of the cgi that's used in it hasn't aged particularly well but for 1996 it's it's really serviceable uh and i think we've kind of become spoiled in in some ways by how good some cgi has gotten there definitely still is some bad cgi out there uh i think film school rejects just had a great video essay on on what makes uh or why or how what makes cgi bad and what makes it not work uh so if you want to check that out film school rejects um but again i think watching it within the context that, you know, email is a new thing uh, and computers are relatively new. Like, with that in mind, I think the CGI is is more than serviceable. And the whole train climax, again, with its misdirections, and you think that Ethan's going to hand the information over to Max, the be- one of the villains, uh, and you think that Kittredge is hunting down Ethan, and then at the end you get, oh, wait, no, nobody who's a bad guy wins in any way. Kittredge turns out to actually end up on Ethan's side. It's a good misdirect and and the final misdirect in a movie full of them. Uh, As I mentioned before, uh, a a little while ago, the opening heist uh, in Prague is great. 
And it, it's a great twist and a really ballsy move by the writers to kill off pretty much the entire team. Uh, I mean, you have Emilio Estevez, who is one of the rising stars of the 90s. Uh, you have Kristen Scott Thomas, who is very well known, uh, among the other cast members who get killed off. But, I mean, those two in particular. Uh, and John Voight as Phelps, you know, killing him off would seem like a ballsy move. But again, he comes back later on in what's probably a ballsier move as making the hero of the TV series the villain of the movie. Um, and I, I think, you know, th there were there were risks taken in writing the script, uh, but all of those risks paid off. Uh, and it, it would have been easy for them to take those same risks and not have them pay off. But the way that the that the script was written by David Kep and by Robert Town and the the, the story contributions by Steven Zalian, um, it's it's really well written, uh, and it, it's it's just really well done and well managed how they they kind of give the audience that shock and awe of killing off basically the whole team at the start of the movie and then circling back to uh, you know this is. Ethan Hunt's series and it is his movie and in some ways too it could be the passing of the torch uh you know Phelps was the main character of the tv series Ethan Hunt is the main character of the movie series so in some ways it's it serves as that passing of the torch from Phelps to Ethan uh as the as the lead guy the main the main IMF agent uh best quotes I already mentioned one by Kittredge uh, after the CIA heist, uh, when he's talking about William Donlow, you know, I want him manning a radar tower in Alaska by the end of the day. Just mail him his clothes. That's a really great line. Henry Ch Harry Cherney delivers it really well. Uh, there's a lot of humor mixed within these Mission Impossible movies, even more so as you go on and, and Simon Pegg gets introduced to the series. But a lot of the banter between Ethan and, and whoever on his team, uh, I mean, in this one, it's... Uh, you know, Emilio Estevez at the start, uh, and then Luther when he's introduced later on. The banter between Ethan and his his teammates is really great throughout all the movies. And again, Mission Impossible here in 1996 sets the bar for that. It introduces us to that. Uh, and part of that is, is another one of my favorite quotes from this movie when Luther says, uh, I'm going to miss feeling disreputable. And Ethan replies, well, Luther, if it makes you feel any better, I'll always think of you that way, uh, which is a, a great written line. Uh, Mission Impossible, this movie, it doesn't have a, a ton of really great lines, but the great writing is more to do with the story, how it unfolds, and as I mentioned, killing off the, the team at the start of it plays a big role in that. Why the movie works. I think John Voight's Phelps as the villain, I, I've kind of beat a dead horse here, but it's a great twist for those familiar with the series. Uh, the movie works as establishing Tom Cruise as a centerpiece to the series. It establishes him as a, as a true blue action star, a bona fide action star. It establishes the relationship with Luther. Uh, it establishes so many other things, which I've mentioned before uh, as well, about uh, the Mission Impossible series that become themes that are, play a big role moving forward. And of course, the, the CIA set piece uh, with with Ethan being suspended from the air vent and, and lowered down. That's just such an iconic scene, which we've seen recreated and parodied so many times in so many other different movies and series and shows and sketches. And it's, it's by far, 
probably the single most iconic and parodied scene or sequence within the entire Mission Impossible franchise. Why the movie doesn't work. And this is maybe something that I uh, have touched on before. Uh, but lots of people aren't Tom Cruise fans and stay away from it. But I used to be one of those people. If you're one of those people, I used to be one of you. Mission Impossible helped start to change my mind. And I've really warmed up to the idea of watching more Tom Cruise movies. The Last Samurai is, is one of my favorite movies. It's, you know, it's, it's up there in my list of favorites. Uh, War of the Worlds is an awesome movie. Minority Report is a great movie. You know, there's so many other Tom Cruise movies and moments that I've come to appreciate a little more over the last two and a half years when I started watching Mission Impossible. Um, and that's started to help me warm up to Tom Cruise as an actor. And I know a lot of the stuff that he's done off the screen and a lot of real life uh, stuff has turned people off and I get that. But if you can separate that from what he does as an actor and what he's able to do on the screen, uh, I think that will help you embrace Tom Cruise and embrace Mission Impossible a little more. Why the movie doesn't work as well, I think one thing that this movie might be missing, and again, it, it's, it can be a critique, and I understand this critique. By no means, I don't think it's my own personal critique. It's just something that I think... Uh, people could use as an argument is the movie doesn't have a real central villain. Um, you, I mean, my argument would be Phelps is that guy, but he's not in two thirds of the movie. I mean, he's not in half the movie, right? He's, he disappears in the first act and reappears in the third act. Um, so there's a whole portion of the movie, the whole middle of the movie where he's not even in it. You think he's dead. Um, you know, Kittredge, maybe he's a villain. Well, he's doesn't have a ton of screen time either. And it turns out at the end, he's really a good guy. Uh, Max, is she a villain? Well, she's a bad guy. But again, she's only in it for a limited amount of time. And she she's not the central villain. Uh, and if you think about a lot of the Bond movies and a lot of other spy movies and action movies, there's a clear-cut villain in a lot of them. And you either love the villain or hate the villain. Um, and then... It, again, this kind of sets the bar for the rest of the series, and, and I am doing that a lot in this episode, but that's really what this movie does, is Mission Impossible, you don't need a clear-cut bad guy villain. Do they help? Yes. Do they exist in Mission Impossible movies? Yes, but not necessarily all of them. And this is definitely one that doesn't, I don't think, uh, or I think people could make the argument that this doesn't have a clear-cut real central villain, and I get that. And for some people, they need to have that battle of good versus evil uh, and have that Ethan Hunt versus blank, Ethan Hunt versus enter villain here. Uh, and you don't get that in this movie really until the last act. Is this a top three movie for the director? Because the Mission Impossible movies, all of them have different directors for the most part, with the exception of the last two, uh, the most recent two. Um, I am going to cover this uh, topic within the Mission Impossible series. Was this a top three movie for the director, for Brian De Palma? I'm going to say yes. And Brian De Palma's filmography isn't super extensive. He hasn't directed a lot of movies, but almost every movie he's directed has been really, really good. Starting with Carrie in 1976, based on the Stephen King story, 
Uh, if you want to hear me talk more about Stephen King, listen to the episode that I just did on The Shining. Uh, but as it relates to Brian De Palma, he started off with Carrie. That's really where he, he became well-known. Throughout the 80s, he had big gangster hits with Scarface and The Untouchables. I think those are his best two movies. I, I love The Untouchables. Uh, Scarface, I think, is, is a game-changer for a lot of reasons. It's a tough watch at times and in, in parts, but I don't think there's any doubt that it is a great movie and a very well-crafted and well-directed movie. De Palma did a great job with it. So I would slot Mission Impossible in at number three behind The Untouchables and behind Scarface. The last thing I'm going to do here is uh, rank the Mission Impossible series. Uh, I've done this beforehand. I, you know, I've seen all the movies at least a couple of times. Uh, I will be rewatching each one right before recording each podcast, but I will be giving my ranking. So as you listen and as you tune in, you can kind of fill in one through six where I stand on them. In terms of the Mission Impossible series ranking, uh, I put Mission Impossible at number four. And that might seem low to a lot of people. And it doesn't, I think it speaks to the quality of some of the other Mission Impossible movies. This is a very, very good movie for a lot of the reasons that I've outlined in the first, uh, you know, half hour or however long I've been talking now, 38 minutes almost, um, of this podcast. It's a really good movie. And because just because it's at number four, I don't think it's the third worst movie. It's just the fourth best. Uh, it's a really great movie. Uh, again, it sets the bar for a lot of things. It does a lot of establishing uh, traits and trademarks for the Mission Impossible series. But I think it's just an objectively good and objectively fun and entertaining movie. Uh, which again, as you go through the series, uh, there are better ones. But this one, definitely a very great movie. So I hope you've enjoyed this first episode of the Mission Impossible series. Next one, obviously coming up, will be Mission Impossible 2, directed by John Woo. Uh, I will be watching that. And recording a podcast on that in the next few days, hopefully. Uh, also, my next standalone episode will be on Charlie Chaplin's great talking movie, The Great Dictator, which celebrates its 80th anniversary this year. In the meantime, stay tuned to the website, talkinggreatestfilms.wordpress.com. Uh, if you're on Twitter, follow the Talking Films account, at Films Talking. Don't forget to follow this podcast on Anchor or on Spotify or on Google Podcasts or however you have been listening and however you're listening right now. Thank you very much for tuning in. We'll see you next time on the Talking Films Pod. My name is Ray. Thank you so much for tuning in. Stay safe and enjoy the movies, everyone.